0: Welcome to church, if I can handle that, it's a day, hope you're doing well, if you're visiting with us, we're especially glad that you are here, um, we're going to be finishing our first trek through uh, the first part of Romans today, we'll be in chapter 4 as we get rolling and we'll be looking and talking about how God anchors everything we've been talking about and so want to give you a little bit of, of, of a recap of where we've been, um, because I told you most of us forget what someone talked about within minutes of them leaving, right? And so although I know you have memorized everything that's been said over the past four weeks, I'm certain of it, um, we'll kind of go through there because today ties it all together. And we, as we walk through Romans, we see this flow and it's, it really is anchored in this first reality that God is unmovable. It doesn't mean that God doesn't reach out. It doesn't mean that God doesn't reach down. Those things are necessarily true. But he is unmovable, not by us, not by anything else. And and where this all begins, see if I've got it right. In Romans chapter, there we go. In Romans chapter one is saying that the gospel itself is God's, right? It's God's gospel and it's his promise, right? So we talked about how the gospel is God's possession And how it's God's promise. Now, this is going to be important as we go later on in the sermon today. But we talked about why that's important. One, it's anchored in the immovable God. That means that the gospel cannot change. But if we make it our possession instead of God's possession, in in other words, if we change it, we make it into something else. It's not God's gospel anymore. And so that's why it's so valuable that we know what the gospel is. And that's what Romans, the first part of chapter 1, says. But then in Romans 1b, we call it the second half of that gospel. We started talking about what happens when we, in sin, drift, right? And, and what we thought, talked about was, is that God doesn't hide his, who he is. He doesn't hide his gospel. He doesn't hide his promise, He's not playing a shell game with us, and only the few pull the right one over. But God makes himself known to us. But in our sin, we turn our back to him and we start drifting away from him. And all of a sudden, what he makes plain starts to be in our rearview mirror and past tense, and we stop acknowledging him. And then all of a sudden, we find ourselves here, which is where sin leads away from God, but oftentimes believing that we now know real truth. This is not a new lie. This is Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter three, right there at the beginning, right? What does the serpent say? If you eat of that, if you drift from God, then you will be what? Like him, right? This is the lie. We have been buying into this lie since the beginning and it doesn't stop. This drift is not unique to you or me, but is unique to all of us as men and women. And then what's interesting is in chapter 2, what we find out then is that this drift isn't just to some people, but that everyone in the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, are are subject to God's good and true judgment, right? Right? That there's no escaping it. That everyone who has ever breathed, every man, woman, and child who has ever breathed, no matter if they are Jews or Greek, no matter what benefits they have, no matter what it looks like, we are all subject to God's judgment because He is good, because He is true, because He is immovable. That's why we're subject. And and by grace, we've talked about that God, through Jesus Christ in chapter three, made a way for us back to Him. That through Christ Jesus we experience a, a grace where God is still just. He didn't bring judgment down. He passed over. As we get closer to Easter, we'll be thinking about that more. He passed over, he didn't change his standard because he's unmovable. He passed over those he's just but in Christ Jesus shedding his blood for us he satisfied that judgment and therefore he is also justifier and through Jesus Christ he made a way for us back to him and and that's where we've been and today what we're looking at in chapter 4 is really out of all of these things probably what we like the best God is built it out for us chapter four says so how do i take this road how do i stay on this road i mean how does that work there's a lot of theories and thought processes out there on how salvation works i mean our stories and our lives our world is littered with all kinds of salvation directives but what's the truth That's what we're gonna look at today. And this is that how to, that's maybe a little bit different than what you um, have experienced before, but this is what we're gonna talk about today. In Romans chapter four, we have this reality that knowing that knowledge is necessary, but it is not sufficient. Knowledge is necessary but it is not sufficient to bring salvation. That's really the cru- crux of this. I'm not sure which way we lean often. Maybe you know your story better than I do, um, but I'll tell you, I love a how-to project as much as anybody else. Um, and, and recently, my father-in-law was spending time with us and he's in the kitchen. And he says, David, your light fixture's dripping. Electricity doesn't leak like that. Y'all know that? Just want you to know. And he looked up, he said, I wonder what that is. And I said, Well, where we're standing, I'm pretty sure that's the commode upstairs right there. You're all welcome to come over and eat tomorrow if you would like. <laughs> and and so, in that, I I would love to say I'm always a good steward, but often I'm just cheap. And so, you know, I bring the plumber in because I'm not messing with that, but I have to cut a hole and cut out sheetrock in the kitchen where everybody comes by. And I just say, Christy, I'm gonna repair that. And Christy just lovingly says, Oh, you can do it. You know, she's just really encouraging, you know. Um, we've done a lot of projects together, and so she knows I, if I try, I, I waste it, and she'll call someone in to make it look pretty if it needs to be done. And so I started saying, Okay, here's what I know I know basic sheetrock 101. Cut a hole, put new sheetrock in, put something around the edges so that it won't stick out, paint it eventually and figure out how to texture it, right? That's basic sheetrock. So this is what I I do. I buy the sheetrock repair kit and it's got everything I need in there. And after I pull out the, the spatula thing, right? The putty knife and after I pull out the putty and after I pull out the tape, there's this ridiculous thing in there. It's like this folded white piece of paper and I unfold it and look at it for a second and throw it away. Right? What, what did I throw away? The instructions. I really want you to know when you and I, when you and I follow the example of what the Lord talks about in Romans chapter 4, we often live on assumptions. We believe that our experience and what we've got is often enough. And that if God just, we just know, we don't even have to seek God often because we know the truth, God. Thanks for enlightening to us. And so we find ourselves often trying to figure out how do we walk with the Lord? How do we explain salvation? How do I take a road back to a right relationship with God? And all we do is we scan the instructions that God gives us and then we throw them away. Now, some of you are not like me. Some of you are very different. Some of you would have bought that kit and you would have pulled out the instructions and you would have read them to death. And then you would have called someone to do it. Because the knowledge was too overwhelming for you to act. Both, when it comes to salvation, lead to sin. Are you with me? Works will not lead you to heaven. That's what we're talking about today. But knowledge of the truth without the evidence and that faith working out is dead as well. And this is what Romans chapter four leads us to. And here's the secret. If you have to go out or if you get sick early, the answer and the truth is not anchored in us. It is anchored in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it is seen in visible form in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. All right? No, you don't get to go home. But that's where we'll end. Look with me in verse one of chapter four. We're gonna try and make it through the whole chapter today if if possible we'll get after it what then shall we say is gained by abraham our forefather according to the flesh now just stop right there for one moment if you weren't with us last week a little recap we, last week the questions was posed by the spirit through paul's writing is one do the jews have an advantage if they're going to be judged just like everybody else do we have an advantage and, and the lord answers well yes you do well, he says, "Well, great. Then that means we're better off than those people. We're better than those people." And the Lord through Paul says, "No, you're not." And it's very confusing because the Jews had boasted in their heritage. That heritage was what anchored them in. That kind of gave them a leg up. They weren't uneducated people, and so they were wondering what's going on. And so Paul ends it with this boasting. And so in verse one of chapter four, the the Lord inspires Paul to speak on their behalf. then then what advantage? What is gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And you might say, what does that look like? If you've never been in church before, let me tell you why Abraham is so important. He is the patriarch of the Jewish faith because before Abraham's story, there was no split. God did not make... Himself or his choosing known in a way that would start this branch that would lead to Jesus Christ. But in Abraham, he says, Abram, which was his name at the beginning, follow me. I have a promise for you. And God adds promise, a promise, a promise. And this branch, it is made and it creates this Jewish nation. It points through kingdoms of Israel and David. And it was always pointing to Jesus Christ. And so the person at the beginning of that split that God touched was Abraham. And by flesh, in in other words, literally by relationship, right? By our, our heritage, the Jews were connected to Abraham and you and I were not. And so they, they want to ask, so so then what is gained by Abraham? If he's so important, how are we heirs through his flesh? I mean, do we gain anything at all? You see, up until this point, the, the Jews, and even beyond it, had really staked a lot. Read the Gospels, read Paul's letters. They had staked all of their salvation hopes in Father Abraham so much that they were children of Abraham that they belonged to Abraham this was their sticking point and what they're saying is by flesh we have this connection to a right relationship with God and what Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit will say that is literally impossible and unbiblical who you are connected to cannot be the case, not simply because your reasoning of heritage, but because you do not remember, you do not know the truth about Abraham. And so he says, let me tell it to you. Verse two, chapter four, look in your Bible. This is what it says. For Abraham was justified, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. See, what he says is, first of all, let's just follow your reasoning for one moment. If Abraham was justified by his works, it would not have been by God, then he could boast in other words you could say God was gracious enough to hide pebbles along the path of life but Abraham was actually able to figure out the puzzle and solve it like he was the right person he was the right man he was able to put God's tools together he might not could boast before God but he could boast before everyone else because he figured it out, no one else could figure it out and now all you have to do is not follow God, all you have to do is follow who? Father Abraham, a man who was broken and sinful, who pretended his wife wasn't his wife to save his own hide at times but was obedient to the promise someone whose flaws are recorded on purpose. If Abraham, who is the pinnacle, this this tipping point in our history, if he figured it out by works and all we have to do is follow his pattern, then you worship an image. That is idolatry. Man. Before we go a step further I want you to know Verse 3 is so critical Because it corrects a desire of our heart So, so read with me verse 3 very cleanly For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness See If Abraham was able to figure it out, go all the way back to Romans chapter two, right? Do you remember what we said when God says, do you presume upon his kindness and presume means to look down? If Abraham by works figured out how to live a life that made him right with God, then he is saying, not only have I drifted from you, but I looked down upon your kindness and I still found a way back to you that's what it would say and what Paul says at the very beginning of of verse 3 is what we must do before we act before we judge before we presume before you listen to anybody else Paul says what does the scripture say see How many times do we find it stirring up in our heart that something just feels right? It's just a good feeling or I remember that somewhere in my story, I'm gonna give God credit for it or someone I know or trust said it or they said it so profoundly. It just feels so good. We don't check the sources because we don't need to because we're so certain we are right. What God says is don't be silly. Stop acting so prideful and so arrogantly. That pride of self-assurance caused the Jews to judge everybody else and in their judgment bring sin upon their own shoulders and made them take a road that would lead to an eternity without the Father. What does the scripture say? Paul just brings it up for Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know where that said in Genesis? This is Genesis 15, 6. Check check it in here. 15, 6. When did that happen? After God said, I promise that you will have an heir and through him, through your heir, will come my blessing. What scripture reminds us is that heir was not Isaac or Jacob that God was talking about. It was the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And God took on this long story all about it. But what he says is if Abraham was righteous when he believed the promise not when he was circumcised not when he did x y or z but when he believed then if you think salvation comes through what you must do to get a right relationship with God then you must believe that and reject the word of God that is literally Romans chapter 2 that's literally what happens when we bring these assumptions that come in. That says, "I broke it. I can fix it." God says, "No, you can't. No, you can't fix it. And yes, you did break it. So you have to believe in one who has not broken it and His grace in order to fix it." Church, it's easy to say, "I can fix this. I can do this." What role can I play? God, give me purpose. God has given you purpose, but your purpose in salvation is not works. It is belief in the one who is your anchor. Yeah, church, I mean, just in my sheetrock repair, if I would just pick up that sheetrock, Repair. If I could just could go listen and train and get skill and, and just let the truth become more and more and more a part of me, then I would be equipped, wouldn't I? It, the equipping isn't what would make me a sheetrock guy. It was the belief that there was a way to be a great sheetrock guy. Well, what the Lord says here is, You can't make yourself right with God. But if you believe that God is who he says he is, then you will want more and more of that. But it will be the belief that brings salvation, not works. And in verse four and five kind of unpacks it just a little bit further. Look with me in your Bible. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is almost like Paul saying, so consider this. If you haven't followed me up to this point, if you're not 100% sure that just believing God, his word, his truth, his plan, all in for him, if you believe that's not enough, if you believe That that scripture is not what I said it was. Just consider this for a moment, he says in verse 4 and 5. If Abraham, by his works, became right with God and God allowed him to have a right relationship, what does that tell you about God? He's not gracious, he's not good, he's just not evil because he gave Abraham the reward that he rightfully earned. You see, if we make salvation centered on us, if we make it centered on Abraham, if we make it man-centric and God rewards us, then God must move. God must not be who he says he is. In fact, he doesn't even have to be good. He just is not evil. Paul says, but on the other hand, Verse five, but the one who does not work, that doesn't mean that he doesn't do anything, but the one who does not work, I would put in there parentheses, work for salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Again, what Paul says is when we believe in God and that is all, where does our hope stand? What does it tell us about God? He is gracious and he is good. And our belief in him drives us to him. But he is the one at work in you. Church, you and I are fantastic at messing things up. We are phenomenal drifters. You don't need someone around you to tell you you're not great at something or you need to be better at something. If if you're in this room, I know you know you're not perfect. And if you think you are, if there's someone sitting next to you, just ask them how you're not. They'll educate you. Right? Because at the end of the day, consider this. If salvation depends on you, Then who is God? Your sin drifter faith says nothing of Him. But if a right relationship with God is based on a belief in the one who justifies the ungodly, then how good is it that the one who has been offended is the one who has made a way back to a right relationship? As a parent, have you ever been hurt by a child? Maybe your child said something very ugly to you. Maybe they, they stormed out. You know what those wounds are. I, I won't give you examples. Do you know what I've learned in those moments of my life? That I shouldn't wait to extend grace. For them to turn back to me I shouldn't make it hard for them To repent But my grace Should be offered not to affirm What they've done But to say you don't have to stay Where you're at Church that is what The Lord has done infinitely more Than what you and I could do Because he is good And he is our father you and I are still drifting. Even if you are saved, you are still dealing with sin. Remember we said that, that the grace of God doesn't excuse us from any and every consequence that our sin causes. We, we've said that. So we deal with that as God is working and glorifying us, but that doesn't make us go off the road back to the Lord because it's our belief that anchors us. Look at verse um, nine through uh, six through eight. Right, we'll go through this and we'll, we'll hit pretty quickly nine through 15. Verse six through eight says, just as God also speaks of the blessing and of the one whom God counts righteous, apart from the works blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are covered blessed is the man who against whom the lord will not count his sin i love that this is almost like a period or an exclamation point in the middle of the 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 talk or the chapter here what what the lord does through paul is says if abraham's example is not enough for you let's look to king david King David would be a man after God's own heart, the greatest leader who had ever been in Israel, and he was an adulterer and a murderer. That's what he did. He had so much blood on his hands, he couldn't build the temple. His son had to do so. Yet David writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, not earned, Not who have redeemed themselves, whose sins are covered from the outside, not from the inside. Blessed is the man who against whom the Lord will not count sin. It doesn't say who has impressed God, who has made up for his sin, but whom the Lord will not count sin. Do you see the Lord is the anchor of salvation? This is not a stairway to a right relationship with God, it's a conveyor belt because it extends from the Lord and it's coming back to the Lord is driven by him. What do we do? We just have to say, I believe you, God. And in that belief, that belief starts showing itself in our life and in our works. Not that works causes belief, but belief causes belief. Work. I believe that this woman to my right on the front row is the one whom I am one with and to be together with the rest of my life. How do I show that belief every moment of every day, turning my eye from anyone else or from anything else that would draw me or put a wedge in that oneness? So my belief works in marriage. How much more does a belief that is not anchored in me or her, but is anchored in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Are you with me yet? We're not even halfway through. We're gonna get there. But there's way too much sideline and backseat driving in our life. And there's way too many people jumping and grabbing the steering wheel and trying to make themselves right with God and skipping what is necessary. Belief that works, not knowledge, not works, belief. And this is where nine through 15 starts to really unpack it. We'll read it as a chunk. The Bible says it this way. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the, also for the uncircumcised? Just so you'll know, this is a question of limitation. Is that type of incredible grace, is it limited only to some or is it available to all? This is a beautiful thing. Verse 10. Verse 9. For we say, excuse me. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? Was it not after? Excuse me, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the uncircumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, plural then faith is null and the promise is void the law brings wrath where there is no law there is no transgression he says just for clarification just to make it one more time plain If you think circumcision, which was this deep covenantal sign of God's people, we would do our best to liken it to baptism, right? This deep covenantal sign. If that was the moment where salvation and right relationship came, then it would be works-based. But if you look at the scripture, then you will see maybe 30 years is what some Jewish scholars will say, 29 years before that ever happened, Abraham was counted as righteous. It wasn't about his works. In fact, if some way, somehow it was God's word, not mine, then the the word of God, the promise of God, verse 14, that faith, is null and the promise would be void because God's promise was trust me, depend on me, trust the plan I have for you, follow me. It was all about him. And so if salvation is about you or what you have to do, then you nullify the promise of God in your own life. You would make it powerless. But by the grace of God, that's not only true. Not only is that not true, it's false. Church scripture will tell us that we will be known by our fruits, whether they are good or bad. It will show us over and over and again that that grace of God is not limited. It wasn't this slice that it was available to. And that it wasn't righteousness in Abraham's actions, but it was his belief in the one who could that made it right. And the rest of the chapter starts to unpack all of this slowly and intentionally. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest upon grace and be guaranteed by his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of his all. For it is written, I, the Lord saying this, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? Church, that is who our faith depends on. Not you or what someone else thinks of you. It doesn't matter if I think you're righteous or the person you live with. It doesn't even matter if you think you're righteous. Your righteousness extends from the one who didn't break the relationship. Who didn't sin against you. But it is anchored in the God who made it so and who gives life to the dead. That is a direct reference to Jesus Christ, the first fruits. The one who showed... salvation really does bring life and rightness with God it was the power of God who called the dead to life and who calls into existence things that do not exist where would you rather your hope be anchored and your track record If today you think the answer is yes, I would tell you fall on your knees. Because what a broken people we are by our own doing. How much more to let it be anchored in the one who raises the dead and who speaks into existence that which is not. The God we drift from has made a way back to him. So how do we believe? What does that look like? Verse 18, in hope he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. Here's what it means. He believed against all odds that the promise of God was true. That's what belief is. So shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken his faith when he considered his own body to be as good as dead or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. When he looked in the mirror, he would not let his faith weaken because it had to be in God, not in him. It had to be in the Lord's plan, not in Abraham's. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. He wouldn't let go. And the longer he held on, the more certain he became and the more certain he became, the more his faith grew and the more his faith grew the more Abraham gave glory to God in his life, in his works. So how do you believe? How do you get a right relationship with God? You lay everything down at his feet and you follow him. You give your heart to no one else, to no thing else. When you look in the mirror you need to see the work of Christ not the pride of man. When you see a brother or sister struggling you see them compelled by the heart of Christ not by the rightness of your pride. And the more you do that the stronger you will become and the more God is glorified in your life. It doesn't matter if people think so. It matters if he does. Verse 23, but the words that counted to him alone were not written for his sake, but for ours too. The promise was not limited to him, but the promise was for you. The invitation is this word today. It will also be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That unmovable reality about God shows that he is worth it all. And there is no other way outside of belief and trusting his promise. So believe it and then soak it up so that you can live out that belief more and more. And the rest of faith will follow in your path. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, today we come to you. Lord, we believe and we ask that you would just be honored in our lives. Lord, not because it's it's to show off or to try to tip the scales in our favor, but we just want in, in faith to believe like Abraham did, certain and assured. Because God, we deserve your judgment, but in Jesus Christ, you've offered a way. And so Lord, just allow us to believe. as we know in whom we have believed. Let us search the riches of your word in your heart so that we can testify of that belief in obedience in life so that you might be glorified even in the restoration and redemption of those who rebelled. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.